0: This is a very odd chapter. In a sense, it seems like something we've read before. It sounds an awful lot like chapter 12, when Abraham went down to Egypt and lied to Pharaoh about Sarah, his wife. Well, here he's lying again, uh, once again, trying to protect himself by claiming that Sarah is his sister rather than his wife. Now, some liberal scholars try to deal with this repetition by claiming that this is just another version of the same story. They think of Genesis as having been put together by an editorial team and that team was stitching together various oral traditions related to the patriarchal family and they suggest that there were two separate versions of the Abraham is a big fat liar story and the editors mistakenly put them both into the finished narrative. But why couldn't this have happened twice? Remember, the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. The Bible is not interested in collecting stories about heroic people. It is interested in teaching us about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. And if that's true, and I think it is, then I think we should be asking What does this story say about those things? I think it says that faithful people often struggle for a long time with certain sins. I think it says that just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you have instant victory over all your various problems and challenges. I think it says that sin has a way of festering and hiding in our deceitful and fallen hearts And God has a way of designing challenges that bring our sin to the surface where it can be exposed, repented of, and treated with the fresh application of God's truth and mercy. So I think that's why this story repeats. I think it repeats because, like a dog returning to its vomit, we tend to circle back around on our own sin and stupid. But thanks be to God, the Lord is patient. And abounding in mercy. And thanks be to God, the Lord is committed to protecting and preserving the line of promise. I think that's another reason why this story has been preserved in the scriptures. One of the things that we will notice as we read through the Bible is that there is an ongoing battle, a perpetual enmity between the serpent and the seed, just like God said there would be back in Genesis 3:15. Time and time again, the devil attempts to kill or corrupt the seed of promise, and time and time again, God prevents him from so doing. The devil wants to kill Jesus in the womb, you might say. And these battles occur at multiple points across the Old Testament timeline. Revelation 12 in the New Testament tells this story in the form of a vision, the vision of a dragon that makes war upon a woman about to give birth to a child. Well, the woman there represents the covenant community. The dragon is the devil. And the point is that the devil has been attacking the woman, the covenant community, the carrier of the seed, the vessel of the promise, all across the Old Testament storyline. So the Old Testament is the story, really, of battle after battle between the serpent and the seed. It is the story of rescue after rescue as God graciously intervenes on behalf of his promise to redeem. That's why this story feels repetitive, because the main characters haven't changed. Abraham is still the carrier of promise, Abraham is still a sinner, and the devil is still smart enough to attack him at his point of greatest vulnerability. That's why the story sounds like something we've heard before. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, some people stumble here over the fact that Sarah at this point is very old. Why would Gerar want her as his wife? Well, again, we have to remember that this story comes to us from the time when the age spans were decreasing after the flood. Back in Genesis 12, when we were doing the podcast there, I quoted Derek Kidner as saying, Sarai's 60s would therefore presumably correspond with our 30s or 40s, and her 90 years at Isaac's birth with perhaps our late 50s. All right, so Sarah here would look like a woman in her 50s. Well, Haley Berry is a woman in her 50s, and lots of people still consider her attractive. But I think it's also important to remember that marriage in those days had a lot less to do with physical attraction. It was more often about political and social alliances. Abimelech may have wanted such an alliance with Abraham, We remember that Abraham was known in the region for military prowess and economic favor, so he may not have cared how old Sarah was. The text doesn't actually say why he wanted to marry Sarah, and we shouldn't import our 21st century views on marriage into an ancient cultural context. We pick up the story again in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Here we see God intervening to protect the purity of the line of promise. We have to remember here that Sarah is already pregnant, though she's obviously not showing. And we remember in chapter 18, she didn't even realize she was pregnant, but God said that she was. So if she had stayed in Abimelech's household for any length of time, there would always have been suspicion that the child of promise was actually the child of an immoral and adulterous affair. So God acts immediately to extricate Sarah from the position that Abraham's weakness and dishonesty have put her in god moves in power to protect the line of promise and abimelech recoils from his experience of that power he he protests that he is the innocent party here and he makes it clear that he didn't know who she was and he has not touched her in any case he's more than happy to give her back to her rightful husband verse 8 says so abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid the daughter of my father though not the daughter of my mother and she became my wife and when god caused me to wander from my father's house i said to her this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come say of me he is my brother again we see that abraham takes refuge in deceit rather than trusting in the lord you almost get the impression that he has just become used to this lie that he told it whether he needed to or not and then got trapped and again, we are reminded here that for a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, there are higher concerns than strict factual accuracy. We, we have to set a higher bar than that. We have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we must be content to let the chips fall where they may. Thankfully, God is highly invested in the safety of Sarah and Abraham. So Abraham need never have compromised Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So here we see that there is dynamic power at work in Abraham irrespective of his weakness and frailty. Abraham is, or rather Abraham embodies the principle of blessing. Here we see Genesis twelve three illustrated. In Genesis twelve three, God had said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So how people are toward the seed determines who people are before Almighty God. Abraham is functioning as the dividing rod of humanity. As he moves through their midst, people position themselves for blessing or cursing by how they respond to Abraham. He is the sword of division, whether he knows it or not. Jesus, on the other hand, knew it very well. He said in Matthew 10, 34 to 35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus understood himself as the ultimate sword of division. He knew that he would move through families and nations and redivide the lines of human society. And he knew that how people were towards him would determine who people would be before God. He said that in John 5, 23 to 24. He said, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me, or believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, Jesus is the ultimate sword of division. He is the embodiment of the principle of blessing and cursing. And what is so interesting is that in the New Testament, Jesus says that his people, his disciples, carry that principle of blessing into the world on his behalf. He says in Matthew 10, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So there is a principle of division and blessing inside Abraham. We see that promised in Genesis 12. We see that illustrated in Genesis 20. When Abimelech was threatening Abraham's seed, even though he didn't know it, the curse of God fell on him and his household. But when Abimelech removed that threat and blessed Abraham, then the curse of God was lifted from him and he was blessed. All right. So see that, hear that, right? See that line stretching all the way to Jesus. Hear Jesus say again, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is the ultimate seed of blessing. Jesus is the ultimate sword of division. As God's people carry the message of Jesus through the world, we effectively create the new humanity simply by how people respond to who we are and what we carry. Now, this is not fancy exegesis. This is Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats. How does Jesus divide humanity at the final judgment? On what basis, right? How people have responded to him. But some people will say, but when did we ever meet you, right? When did we ever even have the chance to respond positively to you? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, Matthew twenty five forty. Let me read Matthew 10, 40 one more time. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Are you seeing this? There there is a principle of division and blessing in the Bible. It is introduced in Genesis 12. It is illustrated in Genesis 20 and then in many other subsequent chapters. And it climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is testified to and transmitted by the body of Christ on the earth. And one day it will divide all of humanity as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. So listen very carefully. Who you are toward the people of God is who you are toward the seed of God is who you are toward God himself. Old Testament and New, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the In of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca.